Welcome to The Rooster Crows, a podcast about life and death and everything in between. I'm your host for today, Roberta Howie. In the spring of 2020, when the COVID pandemic started, no demographic in society was left unscathed. This included the roughly 36,000 people institutionalized in provincial, federal, or territorial prisons across Canada. Due to conditions in these prisons and the rise of COVID-related outbreaks, there is a sharp decrease in those numbers, as 6,000 were released in May of 2020. When someone is released from prison, they often have little or no resources available beyond any friends or family or communities that maintain a relationship with them. Depending on the nature of their crime, they may be denied jobs or the ability to travel, and most importantly, housing. While we claim to be a society that offers second chances, this is often not the case, or people don't know how to do that safely. As a society, it is much easier to justify not spending resources on those who have committed crimes, served time in prison, and are now released back into the community. We have no problem convincing people that we should invest in childcare or environmental efforts or long-term care for the elderly or the disabled. But when we talk of those who are incarcerated, the air chills and people change the subject. And often we hear that people bluntly don't deserve any supports after they've committed these offenses against victims and against society as a whole. But what happens to those who have spent 10 or 15 or 20 years behind bars and are now told to reintegrate into a world that has changed so rapidly around them? And what happens if we do offer them room to grow and adjust? Today, I am speaking with Restorative Justice Housing of Ontario Initiative. RJHO has been working with communities and people released from prison to reintegrate them into society safely and effectively. I am joined by Joseph Lauren, the program director for RJHO, and someone who knows personally the challenges folks face when they need housing and employment with a criminal record. A lawyer by trade, he served time in federal prison for insider trading and now works to make sure that as many people as possible are able to adjust to life outside of prison with dignity, respect, and safety. Good morning. I am here with Joseph, who is a program director with the Restorative Justice Housing of Ontario program. And Joseph, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's my pleasure to uh, to meet you and to speak with your audience through you. Thank you very much. Now, if we would like to begin with maybe a little bit of your story and how you're connected to RJHO and where where would you like to start? Well, my story is a long one. I'm you know, my background. Uh, I was once a lawyer and respected member of the society, so to speak, and then I went to prison and I lost everything during that experience. I had a, what I can talk about later, a sort of a divine intervention experience in Kingston Penitentiary. And uh, when I uh, left prison, I, like most uh, ex-prisoners, I had very uh, difficulty finding a place to live uh, because in Canada, you can openly discriminate, in Ontario particularly, you can openly discriminate against someone uh, for housing or a job based on their criminal re- record, no matter how long it is. You know, maybe it's a, you just got out of prison or maybe you committed a crime 20, 30 years ago. People would say, yes, you have first and last month's rent, but we just don't want to rent to you for whatever reason. So I faced that difficulty and uh, because of my experience in prison, I tried to uh, take some good from my bad of my, my experiences and I was working in the area. I was involved in the creation of a documentary that was a white collar crime prevention documentary. And someone from Restorative Justice Housing, which was a new charity that was just formed, saw it. And they thought I'd make a, a good program director because of my ability to interact with men who've been in prison, because I did time in maximum security prisons. And also uh, property developers, uh, homeowners as such, 
which we'll be renting homes from, to then house ex-prisoners. I thought it would be a good conduit for that because you can imagine when you, you uh, let's say you, you face a homeowner who's renting the house saying, I would like to rent your house and in your house we're going to put a bunch of ex-prisoners. Now, and, and, you know, so I, I'm sort of the face of that, so I'm not too scary, not too intimidating. And I, and I would always say, that I, I know you have preconceptions about what an ex-prisoner is or how, how they are. I'm going to tell you they're going to be at, better than your average tenant or better than other, you know, your friends might own rent homes. They're going to be better than their tenants. And that's been was our goal from the start to change. One level was, of course, to provide housing for ex-prisoners who are committed to reforming their lives. But also, I think was maybe a bigger bigger goal was to change the perception of ex-prisoners as employees, as tenants, by showing you know doing a better job than what people expect. So that when you know maybe years down the line when you know RJH was gone or no connection to RJHO at all, you give someone a chance to re to rent a room or you give someone a chance in a job. And that's I think our long-term goal. It certainly, is my long-term goal to change perceptions. And uh, from, from our own example, from uh, our very first landlord, referred us to our second landlord, who then rented a, a second house to us, that same landlord. I think we're doing a good job in that area, and I think it, this is a program that can be replicated throughout Canada. It's certainly less expensive. You know, we have, we receive no government money whatsoever. So whatever our monthly costs are for providing a room to somebody, it's far less than what the government would in, in a socialized housing setting. So I, I think it's, it's, it perhaps could be a future model because there is, there is a supply in the market of home, rental homes out there. And we provide uh, rooms within those homes, uh, modest homes, modest rooms, for people that want to turn around their lives for the better and in so doing, you know, become productive, tax-paying members of society, and that benefits everyone. So that's, uh, that's the long and short of it. Maybe that's too long, but that's as long and short of it then. <laughs> It gives everyone a good chance to sort of see how this works, because yeah, RJHO, I remember hearing about it years ago, and immediately you start thinking of a thousand ways that could go right and it could go wrong, and like, yes, especially for, I think this is the thing for a lot of us that work in nonprofits and deal with fundraising or deal with charitable work, is right off the bat, I think the elephant in the room is that working for uh organization that deals exclusively with people that were recently incarcerated, that is not as an easy sell for a lot of people as, say, you know, a Save the Wildlife Foundation or something involving children or uh, illnesses. It is much easier to advertise for summer camp donations than it is for, like, the recently incarcerated. And A hundred percent. I agree with you. And, but it is, it is a need in society if you think about it. You know, so, well, again, my example, I got out of prison, couldn't find a place to live. Now, I was very fortunate, there's been many experiences in my life where I sort of, you know, the divine interventionist types, where I actually well, I was play, playing a football uh, pool, you know, the football Sunday pools people have, and I co-won it for like $11,200, and I took that entire amount of money, and I used it to pay my entire year's rent when I got out of prison, so that the person who was renting to me didn't have to do a Google or a criminal record check, et cetera, they had no risk of being a credit check. So I was very fortunate, but most guys, of course, get out of prison. Maybe they've been away so long they have no more family connections or you know, they burn some bridges through other issues and they get out and they have maybe negative Google searches and certainly criminal background searches and they can't find a place to live even though they, they you know, want to pay the first and last or can and rebuild their lives and they can't. Yeah, so obviously it's easier to raise money for the squirrels in some forest somewhere. You know, people want to donate to that. But this is a need society and if, if it's not met, the problem will only get worse because you have a, you know, growing homelessness and and whatnot. If someone really is committed to, to reforming their life, like what I say when I deal with the guys I work with, I will work as hard as you will work to rebuild your life. And I think if, if society has someone who's, who made a mistake, paid their debts to society, and wants to reform their lives, I think it's, it's, it's long-term positive for society to work at least as hard as that person is willing to work to reform their lives. And, all, and in our case, it's really give someone a safe place to live, 
to, to build from that. Because you know, can you imagine yourselves? I bet everyone in your audience is doing better than my average guy who comes out of prison. Imagine you, you know, for the grace of God, something went wrong in your life. Maybe you had a few drinks one night, had a car accident, killed somebody. You went to prison, but in that experience, you lost all your family and friends, no connections whatsoever. Imagine how hard it would be for you to rebuild your life where you have to live in a shelter. Or I had got one of my first residents, actually, my third resident, he was living in a storage locker. So he would rent an industrial storage locker for a couple hundred dollars a month, and he would sneak in at night and then sneak out in the morning living in that. Imagine how hard it would be to rebuild your life, maybe find a job when you're sleeping, basically homeless, to, to rebuild your life. So we give a person a safe place to room. We let them interact with you know, positive members of society and volunteers. And from that, you know, I've had a tremendous success stories that you... It, However difficult the job is and the challenges have, when you find one success story, you go, well, it's really worth it because I know that person wouldn't be where he is today in a positive way, but for RJHO's existence. So that's what keeps us going. Absolutely. It also brings me to my second part of the question is when we talk about the people that you work with, who your clients are, who were recently in prison, is there a particular group that you're looking for or is it sort of anyone that comes in the door or is there, is there a criteria for who qualifies here? Uh, well, it's, you know, what we found through the, through the years is that generally the, the typical, it's a man about 55 to 60 in that range who's done at least 10 years or more in prison. And if you think about it, it makes, makes sense why that person would come to us. They're old enough that they've you know, been in prison long enough, they probably lost their family, they've passed away or they, they've broken their connections, and uh, maybe they're maybe too old to work anymore, they have other issues in prison. The general health care in prison is terrible in Canada, and so, you know, if someone's 55 coming out of prison after 20 years, he it looks and maybe acts like if someone's much older because because of the the diet and the, and the stressful conditions and the violence in prison. So that and and usually in the fifty five range, if they're younger than they're getting a, a old age supplement, which is about fifteen hundred dollars a month. So maybe with that much money, you could find a rooming house to get you a place to live on your own. So they're coming out and they may be getting OW Ontario Works or Ontario Disability Support Program. And for example, Ontario Disability Support Program program uh, gives you five hundred now. Just changed now to I believe five hundred twenty five dollars a month. To, towards housing. In Toronto, you cannot find a place to live for 525. And imagine it, it's not disability, it's Ontario Works. You get $397 a month. You cannot find a place to live for $397 a month unless it's li- sleeping on someone's couch. So, like you literally that, can't afford groceries can't. at that amount. You, you, no. you, you can't. So it's very difficult. So that's the kind of person who comes to us. Usually a referral from prison chaplains for the most part. You know, they, they've had someone, they met someone in prison through the years and they think he's, you know, this person's ready for reform. And they refer them to us. We have an interview. We, we uh, see, see if they're, they're a good fit. The only restriction we have is because of our relationships with our landlords. The very first landlord asked that there be no sex offenders among our, the men in their house. And that's sort of been, and they told the second landlord, told the third landlord. So that has been our only restriction. So we, we, we are not able to take sex offenders, but everything else, we, every other offense we can. But, uh, and we're, we're trying to, we're not trying to just take randomly people. We think, because the, the need is so great. There's, you know, say 100 applicants, you say, I want to take this one of the, of the 100. And why? Because this person is in need one. But two, I think this person has potential for reforming their lives. But, and, and the only thing holding them back is a safe place to live. And that's the kind of person that we're looking for. I have been thinking about this over the past little bit, especially with COVID that no doubt uh, was a cannonball through every part of life, every demographic. I don't know. I do not know a single person that was impacted by COVID or not impacted by COVID, let alone if you have someone that was in prison for a period of time and then COVID just went through the prisons like nobody's business. 
and then you're coming out and suddenly any of those resources that were available, whatever thin resources were available in the first place, they are now gone because people don't want to be in connection with anyone. If you have no real idea of what the world has been like for the past 10 years because you've been in prison and the world changes so quickly that having an organization that's able to say, here's what the landscape is, here's what the rules are, here's what the community is, and we can find a way to do it, because right now, to try to do it on your own, it is almost impossible. And we, we started, our very, first open, open, our very first house opened up right at the start of COVID. So we had all the Perfect restrictions timing. I'm facing, and I said, well, you know what, these restrictions are not, are not going to make this possible, so I just, I just got to do what I got to do. So I would still visit the guys, I would still move people in, because you had to, because I'm, I'm taking a guy from a homeless shelter or on the streets, into a house. I'm going, well, can I say, oh, the COVID rules prevent me from interacting? I can't, right? This is your one chance to change this person's life. I just had to do what I had to do. And, and it worked out. We sort of got through it. And, but you're right. It was very difficult because the volunteers you thought were in place in the beginning, well, they're not as, you know, sort of a direct or adventurous as I am. So they'd say, well, I can't interact because of these restrictions, et cetera. So then you have to fill in the blank, uh, fill in the void with the, vo- you know, the volunteers do that. I'm filling it in sort of thing. And we, uh, gladly we got through it. So we started one house. Now we have four. So who knows what you know? Next few years will bring, and it's all because you know you have a goal and you almost a mission in the sense you say we have to do this because if we don't, no one's doing it in the in this sense. These say 15 people we have providing a house. What would they be doing right now? Their lives would be certainly okay. arguably much worse, but for our existence, and that kid sort of pushes you through. So if there are any future restrictions, I'll probably break them again in some ways to <laughs> to make it happen because I you know I feel a, a bigger obligation at that point. At that point, you're dealing with people that, you know, the worst case scenario, they've already dealt with the worst case scenario. It's already happened. Yeah. So, like, yeah. what more can we do at this point, right? That's right. No, that's right. If, yeah, prison is not a pleasant place. I'm going to tell everybody. I know there say uh, people who, again, I was, came from a white-collar world. No one has a lot of experience with prison. So they think, oh, there's all these fantastic things in prison, all these luxuries. And I, th- I said, I was in, when I started my, my sentence, I slept on the floor. My very, I was in the Don Jail when the Don Jail was around mm-hmm. Toronto. So my, my, I moved it into that, that range, a range is a collection of cells. So I slept on the floor for a week because it was a three men in one cell. Two guys have the bunk beds and the third guy sleeps on the floor. That's me. And then, uh, so these are the kind of things you get in prison, very common, where you, there's no luxuries. We had, I remember we had one book on that range. It was a Harry Potter book. And I read that like three times. I was there for a month. The state, one book for like 30 guys. That's all it is. And there was no library access, nothing. We actually didn't have a television there. It was, it was that, but that was very typical. So there are no lot of luxuries in prison. If you think you know your tax money is going to get prison prison this fantastic life, it's not. It's probably for guards and other other structures you're building. But very little re- reformation going on in prison, where you can uh, or inter- uh, helping them reintegrate with society. Very common when we get men from prison that they have no identification. You would think it'd be an obligation on the prison system to make sure this person being released to society has all their ID in place. They don't. So I've had guys with just their photocopy of their prison card, and I have to try to get them ID for the next weeks or so to get, get them reintegrated. But that's me helping them. Our organization volunteers helping someone. Imagine you're someone gets out of prison with just a photocopy of your prison ID. Here you go. Now, find, now rebuild your life. Almost impossible. Especially now that everything is online, like in order to renew like my passport and my health card and my driver's license, I had to start doing everything online. And that was complicated enough for me. And I use the internet. I was born and bred with the internet. It is my lifeblood, let alone for someone that has at best no computer access for long periods of time, no training in how it works. The system has entirely changed. And like that is just in terms of government ID, let alone like finding a job. Almost everybody in 
starts looking online and has an email address and knows how to use that form yep. of credit check or background check that is often online and let alone how complicated that is for someone who was released from prison and now they have to figure out how to make that work so it yeah, sounds like you're, you're, you're a 55 year old man a 55 year old man you were in prison for 35 years there was no internet there was nothing cell phones other things like that 35 years ago and you get out on the streets i remember when i was released it was it was uh, very bizarre so i get outside and I see cars buzzing around, and I wasn't in that long. And it was um, it was very disorienting seeing cars and people milling around, all these different changes. But imagine it was like I was in 35 years or so, which is not uncommon. And you you all this everything's on your cell phone, and you've never used a cell phone before. You've never used a, anything or a computer or anything else. It's very disorienting. And maybe some guys just they're actually never get back into the swing of things. So even though they've been out for a few years, they're still been institutionalized, is what we call it. Mm-hmm. And they and they just need help uh, the rest of their days because they've just been way too long. I imagine then you also see like the risk of the cycle happening all over again because for some reason we as a society have decided that the community health, the mental health, the physical health for anyone who's dealing with anything close to houselessness, close to uh, some form of uh, drug use or like basically anything that doesn't fit like a tiny little box, prison is apparently the easy solution but we don't fund the prison as well and it's a vicious cycle of people getting incarcerated or institutionalized for reasons and then getting released and being told oh you don't fit the societal rules and societal laws that we didn't teach you by the way so back in you go and we do this all over again it 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 sound you're just hitting your head against the wall and expecting something to happen I often say this, the system of justice in Canada exists to benefit those that are administering it, because that's really who, who benefits it. It's just, it is a revolving door. A guy in prison, all he has is time. You could spend all the time educating him or, or preparing him for eventual reintegration, and they don't. You just sit in your cell a lot of times. You know, I was in Kingston Penitentiary, and you were locked up there 23 hours and 40 minutes a day in your cell, save for yard time when you go to yard for an hour, which happened every second day or so. Or so. so you have 23 hours and 40 minutes in your cell doing nothing. Couldn't that be better served? Like, you know, give a person a book or you know an educational program as, as part of it. Say you know you get extra yard time if you do these exams or something. Something incentivizing, and it's just not it's just not there. And you say, what are we doing? We really are warehousing people in Canada. And when a person gets out, you shouldn't be surprised. There's no there's no excuse for committing a crime. But you, a lot of guys say, I don't know any better in the sense he actually doesn't know any better. It's not an excuse. He's just you know put a, locked up away, and you now he's on the streets. And he doesn't know how to get, and he has nowhere to live. What do you do? And so that's it's a very short-sighted part of, the, of our system. And you know, I, we could talk about that another time. Prison reform, the things I saw. But uh, so we, we're trying to fix the one little problem, which is housing, and, and that's all I can do right now. So I am trying to do that. It, and it is such an important part where, like, we've seen this time and time again with uh, poverty projects, with housing projects, with nonprofits that the number one way to determine whether someone will end up further in dire straits is not whether or not they have access to. Uh, like a car or access to food or access to community it's access to housing because it creates that space that you can be all of that and take care of all of that and once you start losing that housing which people have been doing at very alarming rates because there's very few places in ontario specifically that rent is affordable and that has access to places like accessible jobs or like the resources that people need and you don't need a car like there's maybe three towns in the province (laughs) that can do that for you and you have to deal with minus 45 degree weather so good luck yeah we're not asking for mansions for the guys right so like you our first house is a is a modest home in a modest neighborhood. So 
And so I'll tell you, the first man I moved into a room, so he moved into a, so he'd been inside 40 years, some crazy long time. Actually never killed anybody, so he was a lifer, but who never killed anybody. He just brought problems in prison, they kept, kept you know, other issues like that. So he gets out, and he's like almost 70 years old, and I, again, we take him to this room, it's a little semi-detached house, take him to his room, and he starts crying. He says, because he'd come from a, a rooming house where he's being abused by the other people in the house, having his medication stolen, be, beaten up, an old man. So he comes to this house, and he starts crying. He says, I want to die here, because it was such an upgrade. And to anyone listening to this, it would be a downgrade of your lifestyle. I guarantee you, 100% downgrade of your lifestyle. But he, for him, it was such, because he goes, now this house is safe. I can make it my own, in a sense, and clean it up, get it the way I want. He started crying. And so his goal really was to have a nice place to die eventually, right? That's that again. These are the type of goals we're dealing. With. We're not. No one's dreaming for you know the top of the mountain. They just want a safe place to live to rebuild themselves, maybe connect with family again that they've lost touch with. I've had a lot of stories of that where, you know, someone who's living rough for years and now he has a safe place to live. He finally says, "I'm going to reach out to my kids who I haven't seen in say 20 years," and they do connect. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing to see that now he has grandchildren that he never knew about. It's like those type of stories are just. It's, they're heartwarming stories, and, and, and they, they only happen, a lot of those stories only happen because we were there to make it, in a sense, facilitate it happening. Oh, absolutely. I truly don't think that they could have been connected if they didn't have a place to call their own and the like, community around them. And it sounds like as much as having that room, having that space, having that privacy is an important part of it, it's also the community around them, the people that are able to be with them and say, I know your story, I know who you are, and I accept and appreciate that we're, we're all in this together. And so how has that community sort of made a difference or made an impact on uh, those who are living there? Well, if you can imagine, so these are people who've been to prison. So the rest of society has always judged their prison experience negatively. Say, well, you've been to prison, I'm going to discriminate against you for a job or housing. Whereas we say, you've been to prison, you have a chance to live here because of that. I'm actively seeking you out with your, because of your, your past criminal history to give you another chance to rebuild your lives. And then in this setting here, you're going to meet people who care about you and want you to succeed, want you to do well in life. We have volunteers, you know, the, the part of society we call in prison, the square society, that you would never have a chance to interact with. Now you're getting a chance to meet these people. They're good people. They want the best for you. They want you to rebuild your life, maybe connect with your family. They're giving you a chance. And I always say to the guys, what you make of this opportunity is entirely up to you. I'm holding you accountable in the sense that if you want to succeed, rebuild your life, here's your chance. And then take it from there. Now, some guys, they fail. They have other issues, the drug demons or mental health issues, etc. But for the ones that don't, that's what keeps us going because we, we know if we, that opportunity wasn't there, this person wouldn't connect it with his grandchildren now after you know, 30 years, which, you know, some crazy story like that, which we've had. Or this person who was in a storage locker now, is li- actually that person transitioned to living on his own, crime-free. What would have happened to him if he was living on the streets? He might have committed a crime, gone back to jail or prison, etc. These type of things. So, I, again, I, I don't want you to think, anyone think it's a handout. It's just a hand up. So we give a ch- person a chance and... The one, let's say one out of ten, it's actually a better record than that, but if one out of ten takes that chance to rebuild their lives for the better, that helps society as a whole for the better in the long run. You know, and if you think of utilitarian, it makes everyone feel better. Society's a better place for that if you want to talk philosophy. So I think it's a, it's a small price to pay for a, a great benefit for society, and, and I'm, I'm glad to be part of it. Absolutely. Uh, one question that has been on my mind a little bit throughout all of this is specifically because of COVID, when I do get on social media and, like, the one thing that pops up whenever someone says, oh, this person uh, was released from prison or there's a homeless encampment somewhere is immediately someone says more cops, more law enforcement engagement. And 
I'm wondering if that is something that you've had to deal with with RJHO and have to deal with either law enforcement uh, making themselves known or neighbors being willing to call the cops uh, if need be, or has that been something that you've worked very hard to like put uh, put a lid on? Well, uh, that's probably two 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 part answer. So as for neighbors, I you know again our goal is to be better tenants than the average tenant. So when guys move in, I say you got to be a good neighbor to everyone. You got to take this. You know, they say we have one house. There's an old woman who lives on the uh, left of that house. I say you take her garbage to the front of the street. You shovel the driveway. You shovel in front of the sidewalk. You shovel the, the fire hydrants. You be great guys, so that when people find out, hey, there's this ex-cons living in this house here, they go, wow, really? They're really? I didn't know. They're actually better tenants than the last guy that lived there. We've had many houses where the neighbor says. We, we, once they find out, you know, there's four ex-cons living there, they go, "Wow, you, you guys are much better than the previous residents of this of this uh, home that you're that's being rented." So that's 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 something that, that's always been a goal of ours, and it, it sort of lived up that way. Uh, we introduce ourselves to the police uh, precinct in the area and make them known, but they're they're not harassing us or bothering us, and you know, the guys are not committing crimes. That, you know, arguably they shouldn't be involved with our house at all. Maybe they pro- they drive by one small extra. I don't know, but it's never it's actually never the police have never been an issue. They've been supportive in the sense that. You know, one member of our board is a retired uh, police detective. They know, you know, you can lock people up, but there's, you know, sooner or later they get out. What do you do? What do they do? And it's, and she's been a really good conduit with the police forces to talk to them about that. And it actually has never been a negative, uh, the police in the area, never been a negative for us. That, that is all really good to hear. Like, I think of, like, growing up, I grew up in Scarborough, and there's always a couple houses in our neighborhood that were totally fine. Maybe some interesting folks moved in, and they were there for, yeah. like, six months or so, and not... A problem and it was only until once word got out that it was usually a halfway house or some sort of transitional housing that is when all the parents in the neighborhood they would start saying but how could you have these folks in our neighborhood or how could you do this to us when they at most they you know had a 3 a.m party in the summer but to my knowledge we they do not have 3 a.m parties there. i'm gonna tell you right now we do not have 3 a.m parties that makes it it's, it's arguably that it makes a difference yeah you have to be better neighbors than that. I, and I understand if I was like a, a regular square on the street and I go, that house down down there has four or five ex-cons living there, I would probably be nervous. But if you give them a chance, you see, well, that house is actually neater, uh, well-maintained or better maintained than the neighbors, right? Or they, they, they shovel the driveway. If you look at them, for, so I think all our guys want to be judged on their present actions, not what they did 20 or 30 years ago, but what they're doing now. And if you look at them now, they're doing a better job than an you know, average. And if you, and you say, well, then why is it a problem they're on the street? If they're actually good neighbors, the, their homes are well-maintained, there's not, there's not an issue, they're not partying, not making noise, that's better than someone else randomly might be here, much be, might be my, much worse. So again, anyone listening, if you interact with an ex-prisoner, I'd say judge them on, on how they act now, not on what they did 20 or 30 years ago for which they've, you know, they served their sentence. It's, it shouldn't, it, there are life sentences, but in your interactions, judge them on, on how you met them now, how they behave now. And, you'll probably both benefit. On the church end, a lot of us are very good, like I said, at feeding the hungry, going to welcome the refugee, dealing with the welcoming the prisoner, visiting the the prisoner part. That part we tend to sort of say, we'll get to that. That, That's on my to-do list, I promise. And something I know that has been big on our end is talking about funding for this sort of thing. And I'm wondering, uh, for the funding, how is the program actually funded through, I know it's through, some of it is the Ontario Works and ODSB checks that they get okay. and that covers some of the rent. Yeah, so, uh, well, you know, we're entirely donor-funded in the standpoint the organization was set up by donations probably from the original board members. They put in their own money, I think, and uh, through other donations. But, so in, in Ontario, for housing, 
the individual is funded directly. So yes, yeah, so a person would come to us with, let's say, Ontario Works. They're getting 397. So we would pool. Let's say we have four guys in the house putting 397 each. Obviously, our rent for renting a home from a landlord is much higher. So then we put their 397s together, and then we cover the difference in the rent to our landlord, and we cover utilities and everything else. So that's that's a charity part of the nation. It I think it averages out about 400 or so dollars a month that we're subsidizing each resident in a home. And that again comes from donations. We've had some foundations been giving us money. I think uh, originally we, we did consider partnering up with like Correctional Services Canada, but as you know, they would part some of their funding. We, we again, I actually prefer men who've just come out of prison are still on parole because there's there's a an element of supervision from the parole system, and they wanted to pay us for, you know a more, a more formal partnership. And I believe the board turned it down because. Uh, Canada, Correction Service Canada had different policies than we did. So we what we have a, a spiritual element, which they probably wouldn't want. We have you know our focus on reintegrating society, which maybe they're still focused on the punishment aspect of it, and it wouldn't work. So yeah, we could be you know I, I we could I could pay a lot more money if I was working for the government, but so I'm a part time employee uh, from a chair from an organization that gets all their money from donations. So it's it's really if anyone's listening, this it's actually not a very lucrative job in any way, but it it is very spiritually <laughs> rewarding. So if you have a spiritual bank account, I am uh, overflowing with that. So. There's, so a crime doesn't pay. There's a crime, crime doesn't does pay, pay joke somewhere in there, and I'm, we're just yeah, going to let it marinate. <laughs> there are a lot of crime doesn't pay jokes uh, for some of it. I guess if you give it, give it up, it doesn't pay. It, it offers some job opportunities, but not nearly as much as one might expect. But yeah, and like this is, uh, I think, some of the spiritual aspect of it has been fascinating for me personally, because when I first heard about it was through uh, one of your colleagues who was at the church I was working at, and he was asking that church for funding and support. And there's something about that where you're trying to find that balance of churches have often been involved in the prison system. It has unfortunately been a lot of sort of like on the extreme end, the Bible thumping of the reason you're going through this is because you don't have enough Jesus in your heart. And once you have enough Jesus in your heart, we'll let you out. And that yeah. doesn't seem to answer a lot of problems, but there, as, as long as I've been in this business, there's been this I, very clear need for people to have some form of spiritual center for themselves, whether it is through religion or some form of philosophy or whatever that helps ground them and connect them with others and say, you know, what I'm doing is impacting me this way. It's impacting people in other ways and how can we change that so that it's a positive thing and not a negative thing and what is that spiritual connection that we're talking about for RJHO? Well, well I, I agree with that you know you say why are churches involved and the answer is probably obvious no one else wants to do it no one else wants to make that dramatic step right it's like yeah you know, there's no if you tell our average citizen saying well you know prison is really a horrible place it's dirty it's dangerous etc their initial response for most people is good yeah. i'm glad right I'm, so they shouldn't have committed the crime they wouldn't do this and, but again it's for, but for the grace of god sort of situation it could have been you and some other you know maybe you wouldn't be, maybe you got hooked on drugs or one of your children got hooked on drugs and they committed a crime etc you could see your perhaps your child in that situation if you can't visualize yourself in it anything's possible so there is a, a so the church groups have involved with us because no one else is really stepping up and the spiritual element I think is very important because you know if you just dwell on the negative of your life you've been in prison for 25 30 years or the crimes you committed it can be overwhelming it could, it could break you but if you say I'm here for a bigger purpose or I when I'm alone or I'm, I'm suffering I, I have this, something else to look up to to motivate me to keep going on to, to, to persist 
that's a beautiful thing, and that it, you know, again, my perspective is whatever it takes for someone to succeed. I, you know, I'll, I'll support that if it's religion or anything else or, or some spirituality or whatever. That's a fantastic thing. So I, probably I would argue that most prisoners are more religious than the average person, just because you have a lot of time to be contemplative in prison, and you're going to talk. You know, if you want, if you believe in God, you, you have a lot of time to talk to God in prison if you're locked up. If it worked for the Buddha, it will work for other people. But yeah, it's been a huge part for many people, especially as they're dealing with this idea of redemption, this idea that we are not our worst mistake or worst actions in our lives. We can strive to be better. We can strive to do better and we can strive to make that whole again, which I think is like that restorative part of all of this. And like, I think it's the part that I'm always sitting with for RJHO is that we got the, the Ontario part that that's covered the housing part that makes sense i'm with you the justice part even that makes sense the restorative part i'm wondering if you want to talk about what that restorative part is well i'm going to tell you the story of what you know the sort of divine intervention story i alluded to earlier now i'll tell you the story story and you'll probably take the restorative element from it so at one time i found myself in kingston penitentiary at which now since closed but at that time it was i believe canada's oldest operating maximum security prison and it was set to close that year that i was there and because of it, the system wasn't putting any money into fixing the, the institution up. So we had, you know, on this, the range is a collection of cells. So we had 15 cells on the bottom, 15 on top, and they all looked face forward to the windows. And the windows were broken. There's a lot of broken windows. It was February. It was freezing cold. Snow and wind is, are blowing in. Guys would take their extra T-shirt, and they shove it in the holes of the broken windows. The floor was burned from previous riots from tear gas. It was dirty. It was dark. We had a washer-dryer to wash all our clothes. We'd get two pairs of pants, two pairs of shirts, two underwear, and we'd have a washer-dryer there. The washing machine was broken, so we'd have to wash your clothes in your sink with a bar of soap, and then you dry it in the dryer. The dryer did work, but it was so cold, so at night, the last guy who's out, you had to pull off the exhaust vent from the dryer, and you'd drop it on the floor and then turn on the dryer so it would blow warm air into the rain so guys could fall asleep. Uh, so in short, it was the worst prison I've ever been in. It was very, a terrible place. So I was there long enough that I was offered the job of cleaner. Now, cleaner, as the name implies, is you clean the range, and in return, you get, I think, $5 a day or $5.25 a day as your pay. But I did it because, again, I mentioned earlier, you were locked up there 23 hours and 40 minutes a day, and the 20 minutes is usually for shower time. But I wanted to be able to walk out as a cleaner out of my cell because I'd have access to the phone because I had two small children then, a, a six-year-old and a four-year-old, that I wanted to call them before school or after school. Otherwise, I'd never know when my cell would be open up for shower time and I would miss them, maybe too late at night or too early in the morning, and I wouldn't get a chance to talk to them. So uh, I took this job, and I'm uh, doing the cleaner job, and part of the job is handing out food trays. So I'm handing out food trays, and the guys in this range knew that I really didn't fit. This is a really tough range. You know, you heard the expression about people have a, a tattoo of a teardrop under, under their eye. It means they've killed somebody, right? So about a, about a quarter of the guys there had this really, the markings of you know, really hard guys. And I used to joke that said, the only teardrop I had on me was when I left on my pillow at night crying for where I was. So I, I was not the toughest guy in this range. Let's put, that's, that's the long and short of it. So I would hand out the food trays and the guys uh, would start riding me. They, they'd insult me a little bit, push back on me. And when I went to prison, I decided I would never let people intimidate me. I would, I would push back and I would take a beating if I had to, but I didn't want to be a victim in this setting. It's a really rough setting. Because whatever reputation you have, it follows you throughout prison. So if you're a victim, so you'll be abused throughout the whole prison system. So this one inmate named Frankie, uh, he said something uh, disparaging to me. I can't remember what it was. And I responded to him in, in a way, I, I probably uh, crossed the prison code of what uh, we're allowed to say to somebody. I went over the line in my insult back to him. And then loud enough for all 30 guys on this range to hear, Frankie shouted out, 
when my cell gets cracked open, and cracked open means open for shower time, when my cell gets cracked open, I'm going to come over to yours and I'm going to effing kill you. And it didn't put effing, as you can imagine. I'm going to effing kill you. And everyone knew, heard this. And because of where we were and who Frankie was, you know, everyone knew him, so he'd been inside a long time. He was at least obligated to now to try to kill me. Like everyone knew this. So I went back to my cell, which was the only one that was unlocked because I was a cleaner. And, uh, and as I'm walking to the cell, I hear all the guys are betting on this fight that's going to happen. So I, at one point, I heard someone say, I was a three bags of chip to one underdog. So people are betting food in prison. There's no money. So you're betting food. So I was a three bags of chip to one underdog in this fight. So I go into my cell, I shut the light, and I know nothing good is going to happen next. When Frankie, he was in one of the first five cells, so his cell is going to be open shortly. Uh, either I miraculously win this fight somehow and I get extra time in prison for, for fighting. More likely, I get maimed or, or I get killed in my cell. So there's nothing good is going to happen next. And I was not a terribly religious person, maybe not at all back then, I don't recall, but, but not certainly not terribly religious. And I shut the light and I start praying. And I and uh, a certain uh, you know a certain point the the prayer became a negotiation with God, which is maybe a little funny. And I said, God, if you can help me get through this and get back to my children alive and well, I promise to take some good from the bad of my experiences to help other people. Now I either said that in my mind loudly or I said it out of my mouth. I don't recall, but I said it loud enough that I, I felt the words. And as soon as I said it, there was an explosion of metal I'd never heard before, like a boom, and then another explosion, boom. And then feet were stomping towards my cell door, like bang, 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 coming at my door. And I go, well, this is, must be Frankie, he must be open, you must get some guys to help him to finish me off. So I get ready for some fight that's going to happen against you know, at least one to five guys. And all of a sudden, this arm reaches out and grabs my cage door and pulls it shut, and it clangs and it locks. And then two, three, four correctional officers run past my door down the, down the hall, down the range. And once I catch my breath, of course, you know, I'm all shocked by what just happened. I, I clump to, to my cage door and I push my, my face against the bars so I can look down the hallway and I see two correctional officers with a stretcher and they're in my view and then they go out of my view and when they come back in my view moments later, on that stretcher is Frankie having a seizure flailing around. They take him away, I never see him again. Within a week after that, I had a parole suspension hearing and I was apparently the only person that I was told by the chaplain there in the last five years to win this hearing. And when the week after that, I'm back in a park in Toronto playing my children. Wow. So um, either that was the, it's always moving for me. It, that was either an incredible coincidence or, you know, divine intervention that I, I spoke about. But all I know is I made a promise as soon, right before that happened. And from that moment forward, I've tried to keep that promise that I made to take some good to help other people from my bad experience and you know you know I, so when people ask me would you speak on this group or talk to this group or whatnot i always say yes because i feel it's part of keeping my promise and so that's what i've been doing so i'm, I'm here to keep my promise there, by there trying was, to help others there was definitely some part of the universe that was watching over you and said like we got to get you home yes. and we got to get you home like right now because it is time it's too bad for frankie though unfortunately poor, i poor hope frankie. you made it <laughs> uh, poor well, frankie i I, I hope yeah. that it was just a just a warning for him, but we will just a warning. Yeah, that's right. At, at the very least, no one got but hurt. So, so, but yeah. So after that, the guys the, the guys in the range thought that I had poisoned Frankie. This is what the kind of people of we're dealing with here, yeah. hard guys. Because I was handing out food trays. They go, how else did they explain it? Right before the fight's about to happen, Frankie has a seizure, takes away. I clearly I must have poisoned him because that's what they would do to win a fight. And you know, I don't think I had a lot of divine intervention talk in prison to say, no, no, I actually didn't poison Frankie. That was divine intervention. You know, but so. I'm just glad it worked out for the best and, you know, and I can help other people because of it. And we're glad that you're here and that you've made it out safe and sound and that you're able to both share your story and continue to help make 
this part, uh, this corner of the universe a little bit of a better place for some people that are looking for that second or third chance to make themselves a little bit better and to get back on their feet. And I think for our listeners, if there's anything that you want them to know in terms of how to support, how to connect with you guys, if there's things that like you would like the world at large to do, how sure. how do they either reach you or what where do they where do they start? All right. Well, you know, the best way is probably our website since we're talking about the modern age now. It's uh, rjho.ca. You can find out more about us there. You can find out ways to donate. You can find out ways to volunteer. And we can start from there and, you know, maybe meet me and I'll tell you some more prison stories, which uh, a little more. Those are PG stories from here today. I have some, uh, some more extreme stories because prison is a very rough place. But I tell stories when people want to tell them. I do uh, speaking to any different groups, corporations, professional bodies, schools, et cetera, if they want. But uh, going to rjho.ca and work from there and we can help each other out, hopefully. Sounds like a good plan to me. And thank you so much for being a part of today. I know that this is always an important thing to do to share this uh, story and to share the work that's being done here so that, you know, we could take care of each other. And so thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure meeting you and pleasure interacting with your audience. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joseph, for joining us today. You can find out more on the RJHO by visiting its site at rjho.ca. The Rooster Crows is a production of Lawrence Park Community Church, a United Church of Canada congregation here in Toronto. You can find us online, including our programs, services, and other podcast episodes at lawrenceparkchurch.ca. I'm Roberta Howie. Thank you for joining us, and until next time, take care.